almost a year ago now, in January, we hosted Indigenous scholar, teacher, and advocate, Wazia Tayawin. In her afternoon address at the Duwamish Longhouse, she challenged us. She'd been with us here in worship in the morning, and she noticed, we're Mennonite after all, hymns and prayers and talk in the name of peace. She asked us that afternoon, for all of that talk of peace, where was justice? She challenged us, we who profess peace often every Sunday in our worship, that without enacting justice in our lives, true peace does not exist. In the words of black journalist and founder of the news site, Black Agenda Report, if the existing structures of governance and social organization cannot provide justice for black people, then those structures must be pushed aside or there will be no civil peace. Chants of no justice, no peace, have been a part of civil protests since the 70s when we heard them, and we've heard them most recently in the streets from ranks of protesters of police violence against unjust treatment and death of black people. This chant proclaims a biblical truth that justice and peace are inextricable and that disrupting the peace, the perceived peace of community is necessary when marginalized people experience injustice. They will trouble the calm surface of the water under which injustice and violence are hidden. This Sunday in Advent, we lighted a candle for peace. What does that have to do with Esther? Esther, the Jewish orphan, taken in by a caring cousin, Esther, the Persian queen who ascended to the throne because of her unsurpassed beauty. Esther, the book that is the basis for the Jewish holiday Purim, which is marked by ribald humor and excessive drinking and outlandish costumes. Esther seeks, <clears throat> Esther seeks a just peace for her Jewish community in Susa. The justice of being allowed to live in a city and a region into which they were taken in captivity a generation ago. She seeks the peace of her people, a peace only possible when a just and equitable sharing is brought. When the decree for the genocide, the genocide of her people, has been canceled. When I was growing up, in a family that read Bible stories, Esther was sort of on the periphery of my awareness. I knew she was one of the few women in the Bible after whom a book of the Bible was named, and I thought that was pretty rad. But then it was when I first studied feminist theology in college that I was reintroduced to the book of Esther and to Vashti. Does anyone know who Vashti is? Blank stares all around. I know. Yes, the seminarian raised her hand. 
Esther may have lent the book her name, but Vashti was the queen who gets this story going. When King Aswarahus, Aswarahus, never quite sure, when he is in the middle of a banquet, read, week-long drinking party, he calls for Vashti, who is among his wives. She is the beautiful one he wants to entertain his guests, read, lecherous creeps. And she refuses. And then she is punished by banishment from the king's presence. Because She's punished because her refusing might set a bad example for other wives. And we can't have that. So she is banished from the king's presence. Although to my mind it seems like Vashti got a pretty good deal. <laughs> But it's Vashti's thank you next to her husband, the king, that opens a position for Esther. A position in the harem is open, and Esther wins the beautiful virgin contest. And I have tended to think of Esther as kind of a beautiful nothing, demure and pliable, going along with everything that's demanded of her, submitting herself to the beauty treatments, using her looks to her advantage, and that's kind of it. This time around with this story, probably the first time since I was in college or maybe seminary, this time the idea of Esther as beauty queen brought to my mind a woman named Halima Aden. Ms. Aiden, who is now 21, was the first woman two years ago to enter a major beauty pageant wearing hijab. She had been the prom queen at her Minneapolis high school. And after her first year of college, she decided to enter and compete in the Miss Minnesota pageant, including in the swimsuit competition, in which she wore a burkini, which is like the full body swimming attire that Muslim women wear or some Muslim women wear. And Halima's participation in that contest raised awareness of her Muslim community in her state, broke stereotypes about the place of Muslim women in society, broke stereotypes about her refugee Somali community, and it catapulted her into international fame and a career in modeling. She's also been the first hijabi to be on the cover of several major fashion publications. And now, at only 21, she is, continues to be an advocate for her community, seeking the peace of her people as an ambassador for UNICEF uh, and travels all over the world speaking on behalf of UNICEF in addition to her fabulous modeling career. She's a great follow on Instagram, by the way. It's true, at the beginning of this story of Esther, Esther does not have a lot of agency. And she does seem to act at the whim of the men who guide her along. But at the point where we come in, in this story, Esther is one, is one of the many wives in the king's harem. She's not been a favorite. She hasn't been seen by the king in a month. She's literally a beauty queen. 
So it's easy to see Esther's thinking when she gets a message from her adopted father Mordecai with an entreaty to act, please act on behalf of her people. You can see her thinking to herself, I'm just an orphan Jew who doesn't belong at court, and I'm just faking my way through each day. Can't some other passionate prophet among the Jews step up to do this work? But Esther does have power, significant power as well as opportunity. She just needs to be reminded of it. And so did I. She is a queen. She has access to the king. She lives in a palace. She has the benefit of standing in two cultures. She knows how to code switch between them. The king has a weakness for beauty and flattery, and Esther knows how to play it. She's smart. We see this as the story unfolds. And now, at this moment, she needs to decide. She's passing for a demure Persian beauty. Will she come out? Will she reveal herself to be a part of the people who are wailing and protesting outside the walls? Folks, I think we are Esther. We live in the heart of the most powerful nation in the world. This is the palace, and we are the beauty queens who have the king's ear. And just by way of comparison, here's what a Hasuerus is like. You may draw your own conclusions. He's really into gold and lavish displays of wealth. He's blustering and buffoonish. He is exceptionally susceptible to flattery and praise. He is retributive to those who offend him. He is attracted by beautiful women, but venomous and punitive if they don't bow to his whim. He is ignorant of what is going on beneath him and willfully blind to injustice. He is swayed by emotional pleas. In the context of this king and this empire, Esther needs Mordecai to remind her of who she is, of the power that she holds, and to remind her that in spite of all she can accomplish, of all of her privilege, she too will be ensnared and affected by the glaring inequities. Her life is also at risk. Mordecai sends the message. Help will come from another quarter. Do you think that you can escape because you're in the palace? Perhaps you were put here just for this reason. From that point, from that sentence in the story, the whole balance of power shifts between Mordecai and Esther, and in the story itself as Esther begins to enact her agency. Until now, Esther has been acted upon. She has followed orders. She has submitted to men. But now she takes charge. She is resolved, and she begins to be the one who is issuing the orders and taking action and giving instructions to Mordecai and through him to her whole Jewish community. And then she goes before the king at the risk of her life. If I die, I die. To seek his favor. And then beyond our reading today, 
She does the political maneuvering that's necessary not only to save her own people from annihilation, but to enact punishment against the man who had called for it. So if we are Esther, what do we do with our power? The book of Esther does not mention God even one time. But most scholars say that when when Mordecai says to Esther, help will come from another quarter, what he is talking about is God's justice to be enacted. He's talking about the work of the divine in the lives of God's people. His whole thing is that Esther might have been put into just this situation to be God's agent for justice. Now, I do not really go into the in for the it, that like it's all part of God's plan business. But I do think that we all, each of us, can use our positions, our circumstances, and what power we have to dwell in the work of justice. Or we can do nothing and God will be at work around us and God's kingdom will pass us by. Even now, outside of our doors, there are people in sackcloth and ashes, bearing oppression, wailing their grief. Like Esther, we are called to decide. Are we going to look outside the palace walls and see? Who are the crowds marching in sackcloth and covered in ash for whom we are advocating? What will we risk? We could just keep our heads down and continue to live stealth, or we could have courage. Let's be honest, we are unlikely to be risking our lives, most of us. In fact, I think Mordecai was probably exaggerating when he said that that Esther's life may have been in actual danger. But certainly, we all have something for which we can risk justice. If we are serious about a just peace for all of creation, we say it every week, we light our candle to acknowledge that we both witness to and participate in a just peace for all creation. There is certainly much more that I personally could risk when I start to think about it. Starting with comfort. We risk being uncomfortable when we examine and have conversations about, for example, our role in white supremacy, individually and collectively. Our role in oppression. I was at a workshop this past Friday called Talking to Kids About Race, and one of the norms, we started with six norms, was be uncomfortable. Let yourself be uncomfortable. It's literally the least we can do. And that's just risking comfort. If we want to push farther toward justice, we also risk status, property, wealth, our jobs. We risk control. All of these are on the table if we as individuals or we together, and actually the joy is in the together, 
If we together in this particular community, these are things we risk if we want to be a part of a just peace for all creation. Those things may be put to death. But we may be put into this place at this time with this money and this property and this power for just such a time as this. Liberation theologians have always said that God's preferential option is for the poor. In the story of Esther, God's preference is for those outside the gate. Those standing outside with Mordecai in the sackcloth, in the ashes, who are actually at risk. Those on the street chanting, no justice, no peace. Who have no choice but to disrupt the peace with their wailing. To disrupt the status quo with their chanting until they receive justice and equity. I am proud to be a part of a congregation that is advocating and moving and wailing and chanting on behalf of asylum seekers, on behalf of people living outside. I am proud to be having conversations about making our space and our community more welcoming to queer folks by looking at the way we use binary language, by looking at our signage, by looking at the ways that we exclude. I'm proud and sometimes uncomfortable to be having conversations with other folks in this community about race. There will be lots of more lots more opportunities to be uncomfortable and to be risky in this time after Jubilee. Time to take risks that follow God into a just peace. May we have the courage of Esther to do it.